Let's find our places. It's been a great morning so far. What a wonderful day. I'm so glad that you're all here. I'm so glad that we can share this time together. We are continuing our Bible study, and we are in the last book of your Old Testament, the book of Malachi. We've been doing this since about the middle of October, and uh, we're in chapter number three today, and we're going to be looking at, looking at that in just a second. Um, the book of Malachi has some very direct prophetic words for the nation of Israel. It has a doctrinal prophetic application for the future setting up of the kingdom and all of that sort of thing. And we've looked at some of those things and we'll see that again a little bit today. But really what we're trying to do here every Sunday morning is help you all with some spiritual food that will help you in your daily life. So we really are emphasizing some practical applications of a passage of scripture that maybe at the first reading you might not immediately see obvious practical applications. But what we are looking at in our series, we're, we're calling it Seven Key Steps to Your Walk with God. And it's a seven-week series, and we're in week number five right now. We've taken a couple of weeks in each of the first two chapters. And the steps that we've seen so far, starting in chapter number one, was just don't doubt God's love. God says he loves us, and sometimes things are going so bad, we wonder if he really loves us. And he, he showed us very clearly that that's not, that's not wise. We, we need to know for a fact how much he really cares for us and he's always there for us. And the second step that we saw that will really help us in our walk with the Lord is to keep up with the details of your Christian life. A lot of times we get lazy, quite frankly, and we think that, well, the Lord knows my heart and, you know, I mean well, but I don't really keep up with all of the things that really the Scriptures command that I should keep up with doing. And we saw very clearly God's very interested in us keeping up with the things that he commands us to do. And so... Um, you have to be diligent. You have to balance all your priorities, and, and we saw that. Uh, the third week, we talked about some issues of cause and effect, and sometimes we think things happen just randomly, and we talked about how there is a cause and there is an effect in things in life, and if you keep that mindset, it will help you. Um, and then last week, we talked about marriages and how we need to guard our marriage, and whether you are currently married or not or looking forward to getting married someday, whatever the case might be, that is a that is a very important part of your life, and God had some very specific things in that famous verse of the Scripture where it says uh, that God hates, the Lord hates putting away and, and the dissolving of a marriage, that, that man should not put asunder what God has joined together. And, and so we saw the spiritual implications of those things and the pictures that they paint. And, and today what we're going to talk about, and, and really in a sense, some of these things kind of overlap, but the way they're emphasized in the Scriptures is the way we're taking them is that, and, and here's the step for today, and it's the title of the message, your personal choices matter. The personal choices that you make every day in your life, they really, really do matter. Um, I, I'm going to kind of intro this, and, and you've got your notes in front of you. There is a lot of people who enjoy theological debates. You may or may not be one of those, but there is a big theological debate that goes on concerning uh, the issue of sovereignty versus free will. And uh, there's a lot of things that people want to argue about that. We have dealt with those issues in this church in the past, but I just want to cover four key questions, and they're in your notes, and, and just kind of set the stage for what we're going to be looking at as we jump into Malachi chapter number three. And the first question is, is God sovereign? Well, the one thing I want you to understand this morning is that the Bible never actually uses the word Sovereign. The word sovereign is not found in your Bible. But certainly the principle is found in your Bible, and, and the very short answer is, yes, of course, 
God is sovereign. For example, in Psalm 135 and verse 6, whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven. That's sovereignty. And in the earth and in the seas and in all deep places. And Psalm 115 and verse number 3, but our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Certainly God has the right, he has the power to choose to do Whatever he pleases to do, and certainly the scriptures give evidence to that, that is literally what it means to be sovereign. He has the sovereign ability to choose whatever he wants. Psalm 132 and verse 13, For the Lord hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his habitation. So when we study the scriptures, we see that God has chosen a lot of different things, right? I mean, he chose Israel to be his people. He chose Aaron and the Levites to be the priesthood. He chose Jerusalem to be his city. He chose Zion to be his dwelling. We could go into the New Testament and many other things. He chose that no man shall come unto the Father but by Jesus Christ. I mean, he just decided that there are some things that are going to happen a certain way. And so is God sovereign? Of course God is sovereign. The second question, does man have a free will? Well, of course man has a free will. Joshua 24 and verse 15 And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, and of course there are literally hundreds if not thousands of different places we could go, but this is just a very obvious one. If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will choose to serve the Lord Jehovah. And all the way to the very end of your Bible, at the very last chapter in Revelation 22 and verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that heareth come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Do you desire the water of life? Do you desire eternal life? Just decide, just choose to do it. Of course man has a free will. In fact, it would be weird for man not to have a free will. I mean, God made man in his image. And we just saw God has a free will. God does whatever he chooses. So God made us like him, and he gave us the ability to choose. So we can choose. There's no question about it, and the scriptures bear that out. So both are true. There's no question about it. And there is no contradiction between the two both being true. And I want to give you an example of that. It's in Matthew 18 and verse number 7 where Jesus Christ said, Woe unto the world because of offenses. And notice this. For it must needs be that offenses come. God makes an absolute declarative statement. It must needs be that offenses come. Then he turns the corner and he says, But woe to that man by whom the offenses come. So on one hand, God is saying we must have offenses. He's determinate about it. That this is going to be what's going to happen. But he says, don't you be the one who is bringing the offense. Because you have a choice. You can choose to be that one or not be that one. So really the question boils down to our third question on the list. And this is, again, just setting the stage for our debate today, our discussion. Does God's sovereignty supersede man's ability to choose? You see, that's the mindset of the reformed theology position that's the mindset of those that follow the teaching of one of the reformers named john calvin that's the mindset that leads people to this extremist view which is an erroneous view that 
God determines everything and literally our lives are kind of like robots that God has determined it and we think we have a free will but really we don't and we just think we do but God really determines it and his will supersedes our ability to choose and that's just certainly not true and it's not borne out in the scriptures. I mean, God makes some absolute statements in the Bible that, and when he does, the, those statements, those things absolutely will come to pass. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It is absolute truth. Yet at the same time, as we'll see today, the fact that God makes statements like that in no way negates our freedom to make our choices. We will have consequences for the choices that we make, but we do have choices in life, and that's an important point. And so the last question is the flip side of that thought process. Is God subject to our choices? In other words, does God have to do what we say? Can we dictate what we want to choose, and God kind of has to roll with that? Well, of course not. That's ridiculous. But these are good questions, and, and these are the kinds of questions that theologians and philosophers, you know, they like to wrestle with, and some people just enjoy that sort of thing, and, and entire denominations of faith are built upon the answers to these various questions, and Really, these questions, I've set them forth for you because they just set the stage for our Bible study that we're going to do today in just six short verses in chapter number three. We're going to look at some serious doctrinal issues that are presented in Malachi, but really, we're going to look at them with an eye towards this practical application, and we're going to see conclusively, I'm sure that you'll agree by the time we're done, that you have personal choices and your personal choices really do matter. Without question, they matter to you, but what I want to emphasize to you today is that they actually matter on a much grander scheme than just to you. So with all that in mind, let's go ahead and read. Uh, I'll read, and you can follow along. Malachi 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, starting in verse number 1. Behold, I'll send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now, when you read through that one time, you may not just immediately think of you know, just a real obvious daily practical application, but I think by the time we're done, you'll probably see it with me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you as always just desiring that your spirit is our teacher today, your word is our guide, that you would open our eyes of understanding and that we would see wondrous things out of thy law, that we would be able to come away from this time today really understanding some things that are going to be critically important in each of our lives because before each of us every single day, we have choices. And we need to understand that indeed they are critically important. And so we lay these things before you, asking you to be our teacher, asking you to help us. I pray for each and every one that's here today because 
as many of us as are here, there's that many different problems and issues and circumstances going on in their lives. And Lord, only you, only you could take one passage of Scripture and give an answer to each and every one who truly and sincerely desires to have an answer from you today. So that's my prayer that you would do that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the first thing that we're going to look at, and really we're going to spend a little bit of time on verse number one, because verse number one kind of stands out, and it's really important. And so the first thing we're going to look at is concerning the coming of the Lord to earth. Concerning the coming of the Lord to earth. And it says near the end of verse number one, it says, The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Well, this is an important thing. I mean, this is really the idea of God coming to earth and setting up his kingdom on this earth. I mean, it's the theme of the whole Bible. God Almighty had a sovereign choice. It was planned and it was prophesied long ago that he would return to planet earth physically. It's a prophecy that is throughout the Old Testament. All the Old Testament Jews were well aware of it. It was absolutely going to happen. It was determinate. There's no matter what anybody thought or said or did, God was absolutely going to come to earth. That was, that was what he said. And again, this is throughout all the scriptures. I just pulled out a couple of references just for emphasis to, to show you how clear it is. Exodus 19 and verse 11. And be ready against the third day. For the third day, the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. So very clear, the Lord is going to come down physically. He's going to come down in the sight of all the people. And a little prophetic reference to the third day, because with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And so after 2,000 years into the third day, what is, what is the year today? 20, okay, and how many, years, how, how many years was it when Jesus was crucified? Okay, so we're coming to the end of the second day. The third day is near and the Lord will come down in the sight of all of his people, Exodus 19, 11. Micah chapter 1 and verse number 3, For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, literally and physically. And so that was very clear. Any Old Testament Jew would have understood this prophecy. But what they didn't understand is the next point I put in your notes, is that he would come two times. They didn't understand that his coming would be divided into a first coming and a second coming. And this is really important. So look back in Malachi and verse number one of chapter three. Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. Okay, that's referring to, as we'll see in a moment, this predecessor, this forerunner that comes to pave the way for the coming of the Lord. And and that will be fulfilled in his first coming with John the Baptist. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But it goes on and it says, And the Lord, like I referred to earlier, whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Notice, I will send my messenger, and the first part of the verse is going to refer to this John the Baptist character, and the the messenger of the covenant in the latter part of the verse, that's the Lord himself. He's the one whom you delight in. He shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. And so you have a reference in verse number one to both an application fulfilled in the first coming and part of it that is not yet fulfilled until the second coming. That's important. And I want to show you that's important because it appears throughout the scriptures in various places. Christmas will be coming soon and we often read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Well, we sing that about Christmas. That was Jesus Christ. The son is, born, the son is given, the child is born. But the rest of the verses weren't fulfilled and won't be fulfilled until he comes back the second time. So we have this dual application. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Jesus didn't do that the first time. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There's no peace on this earth until the Prince of Peace shows up. He's going to do that yet future. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Man, that hadn't happened yet. Look around. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So you have both comings wrapped into one couple set of verses. Isaiah chapter 61, the first two verses, again, we have the same thing. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Stop there for a second. Because right up until that point where it stops is exactly quoted by Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, when he went into the synagogue, opened the scrolls, and read from Isaiah the prophet. And when he had Isaiah 61 in front of him and he was reading, he got to this point. The sentence hadn't ended yet in Isaiah 61, verse 2. And Jesus Christ, it says in Luke 4.19, and he closed the book. And he said to them, this day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your sight, speaking of himself. But he intentionally left off the last part. Why is that? Because the last part, and the day of vengeance of our God. Well, that's the second coming. That's another application. Okay, how are we doing so far? Y'all kind of staring at me. We doing okay? We got a little Bible study. I mean, we're doing a little work, okay? So just, you know, nod or... If you're real exuberant, shout or do something. That'd be, woo, okay, I got one. Okay, good. So, so what does this all mean? This is kind of weird. No, it's, it's wonderful. This is Bible study. So what's going on is you have prophecies in the Old Testament that are declarative. This is going to happen. But through history, we have found, oh, indeed, some of it did, and some of it is still yet future. What's that all about? Well, in your notes, I, I put this reference to something that we'll call the mountain peaks of prophecy. And can we have that graphic? Do we have that graphic that we can throw up? This is out of a book that you can buy by a guy named Clarence Larkin, and it's just a a pictorial representation of kind of how the Old Testament prophets viewed events yet future in history as they were prophesying. They didn't fully understand everything. God gave them a vision, and they prophesied what they saw. And so if you look at the prophet on the left-hand side, what the prophet saw was just the mountain peaks. Imagine looking down a range, and you see the peaks of the mountains, one behind another. But what you don't see is the great valleys in between any particular mountain. So the prophets would look, and they would have God's revelation of the things like in Isaiah 9 or in Isaiah 61. And they would just declare it all. But what they didn't understand, that there's this big valley in between those two mountains of the two comings of the Lord that would be, for example, the church age. And that's a really important thing because in the mind of the prophet, it's one big event. It included the judgment. It included setting up his kingdom on the earth. And the dividing it into two, if I can be so bold as to say, was kind of an afterthought. It was kind of a plan B. You say, how is that possible? Well, I'm going to explain. Because of the personal choices of the leaders of the nation of Israel, when Jesus Christ came the very first time, because of their rejection of his offer, God postponed it for a couple of thousand years 
until it will be ultimately fulfilled. Is God sovereign and will he do exactly what he said? Absolutely. Do the, do the people of Israel, did they have choices in the matter? They absolutely had choices. Did their choices matter? They absolutely mattered because they postpone history. For about 2,000 years, I'm telling you, if you don't study the Bible that much, this ought to start to get your motor going. There's some really cool stuff in here. So God's sovereign plan, if you roll with me on this, okay, kind of shifted based on the choices of man. And, what, and the way it played out, and just very quickly for you, is that there was three official rejections of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can jot these down if you want, but very quickly, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 30, is the story of what we call the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. And, and the whole idea is, is that they were assessing the, the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus and attributing it to the devil. And immediately after that event in Matthew 12, that's when Jesus in Matthew 13 begins immediately to speak in parables. And he speaks in parables for the express purpose to confuse the guys who aren't really interested anyway. Strike number one. And then strike number two is their ultimate rejection of him at the crucifixion. And Matthew 27 and verse 25 is that terrible verse where the leaders of Israel say to Pilate, he's like, what do you want me to do with this guy? Well, crucify him. And well, I don't want his blood to be on my hands. And they said, well, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And boy, don't you know that? has come true and so they rejected him again but you could say well that's enough to in the mouth of two witnesses you're done but when Jesus was dying on the cross what did he do he said father forgive them they know not what they do and so in Acts chapter 7 we get into the early chapters of the book of Acts and we have Stephen who goes and basically proclaims the entire message of the Messiah who was then crucified and then rose again, and he points out to these religious leaders, and he says, you're the ones, you're the ones who crucified him. And we see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, and, and, and people, you know, surmise why they think he was standing. At the end of the day, the idea is this. They had another chance to receive him, and potentially the kingdom could have been ushered in right then at Acts chapter 7, but they rejected him, and they stoned Stephen, and they killed him, and three strikes and you're out. And the whole thing then goes into a mystery form, and that's the church, the body of Christ. If we had that graphic up again, it was just basically the, the mountain peaks. It's the valley between the mountains. So I want to get your attention. I want to show you that that's how it works because in um, Ephesians chapter 3, the first few verses make that very clear. Again, this is Bible study day, but I think if you put the pieces together, it's going to give you something. Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to read the first six verses. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me to you, given me to you word, how that by revelation he was made, was made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. What about this mystery? Which in other ages, ages previous, was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is this mystery? that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. It's the mystery of the body of Christ. It's the mystery of the church. This was nothing that was explicitly laid out in prophecy throughout the Old Testament. Oh, it's in type and it's in picture only after the fact. But the mystery wasn't revealed until it was revealed to the Apostle Paul at this point when he writes the book of Ephesians. Ephesians. 
And so that didn't come into play until the Jews officially rejected their Messiah. So as a result, the free will of man, for example, in this case, dealing with the two comings of the Lord, the nation of Israel's official religious leaders, their choices concerning their Messiah did affect God's prophetic plan in the moment, but not ultimately. God came and he fulfilled part of what was prophesied, but he didn't complete the fulfillment. He postponed it for about 2,000 years, which means that if Israel had received him totally the first time, then the coming of the Lord would have been one and done, like a University of Kentucky basketball player, one and done. And, and there wouldn't be a church age, and there wouldn't be a second coming, and you're like, wow, you're blowing me away. Listen, I'm telling you, your choices matter. How would have God worked that out, Jeff? I'm not sure I know. But I know this, because of what they did, it played out, and God still is going to fulfill his word with a sovereign plan B. In other words, every day of your life, let's just make it real practical, you're faced with choices. Am I going to choose door number one or door number two? <laughs> okay, well, I don't know. Well, whichever one, everybody picks one. So if I pick door number one, here's the point. Regardless of which choice you make, God has an eternity of subsequent history that will unfold as a result of the choice you make. And if you chose something else, he still has an eternity of subsequent history that will come as a result of the choice that you make. You know, the kids now have those cool books where you can pick the story as you go and you turn to a different page and the story changes. Well, God's is a cooler version of that. And so that's the way he set this thing up. He's prepared for it all. So in the issue of the coming of the Lord to earth, yes, we see God's sovereign, but we also see that your choices make a huge difference. That doctrinal study ought to, see, ought to help you see how it applies to you. Well, let's go to our second point. Not just concerning his coming to earth, but concerning the preparation for his coming to earth. Still in verse number one, behold, I'll send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. Before God comes to earth, he's going to have somebody who's going to be his forerunner. This is also repeated for us in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number three. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So once again, God has sovereignly chosen to prepare the way for his physical return to this earth by sending another prophet or a preacher before him. That will happen no matter what. So now if you notice in Mark chapter 1, the introduction of Mark's gospel, verses 2 and 3, these two references from Malachi and Isaiah are referred to in Mark's gospel with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. That's Malachi 3.1. It goes on and it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's Isaiah 40 and verse 3. If, by the way, you compare Scripture with Scripture, and you compare what he said in Malachi, shall prepare the way before me, Jehovah God said. And here it says, he says, I will send my messenger before thy faith, which will prepare the way before thee, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand that Jesus Christ has to be Jehovah God. There's no question about it. I also want you to notice 
that in Mark chapter 1 and verse number 2, it says, as it is written in the prophets, because there are two prophets that are being quoted. If you have any other Bible than a King James Bible, your Bible doesn't say that. If you happen to carry an ESV or an NIV or an NASB or any other Bible that doesn't come from a King James Bible, King James and a New King James, it will say, as it is stated in Isaiah the prophet, it says in Isaiah the prophet, and then it quotes Malachi, and then it quotes Isaiah. Well, I don't know about you, but where I come from, that's just wrong. That's just a lie, because Isaiah didn't say that. Malachi said the first part, Isaiah said the second part. And so you have in Mark chapter 1 and verse number 2, in any of those other Bible translations, a proven error. And I don't know why you'd want to read a Bible that has a proven error somewhere, because how are you going to be sure that somewhere else there isn't a proven error? But in a King James Bible, it says prophets, and I'm not trying to beat a, a, a drum too hard, but I want you to understand, man, just, just stick with the old KJV. You're going to be just fine. It is accurate. It's literally right in everything that it says. And in the context of Mark 1, 2, and 3, he's, he's talking about John the Baptist, because if you looked at verse 4, it says, and John did baptize in the wilderness. Okay, so the forerunner of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was, was John the Baptist. That's very clear. But if you went back to Malachi that he referenced, and if you happen to look forward into chapter number 4, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks, and verse number 5, the forerunner is specifically named as Elijah. Malachi 4 and verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, not just any prophet, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So I put a question in your notes. Is John Elijah? Is it John or is it Elijah? I mean, what's the deal? Okay, how y'all doing? We okay? I know we're studying the Bible this morning, okay? All right, so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna unravel this thing. We're going to make it clear. If you've never seen this before, this is going to be a blessing to you. Okay, so is it John or is it Elijah? Well, the Bible should have the answers and we'll find that it does. Luke chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. This is literally speaking of the birth of John. For he, talking about John, shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, as all great people are in the sight of the Lord. I'm just saying. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, that was free, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him, notice, in the spirit and power of Elias, the Greek way of writing Elijah, he's referring to Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So certainly this coming John the Baptist was to fulfill that role in the spirit and power of Elijah. You go to John's Gospel's reference to this situation in chapter number 1 and verse 19, and this is the record of John, not John the Apostle, John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? He confessed and denied not, but confessed... I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet, some other prophet that they expected? And he answered, No. So he's to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, yet his own testimony from his own mouth is, No way, Jose. Matthew's version, chapter 17 starting in verse number 10. And his disciples asked him, saying, Jesus Christ, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come 
And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you, notice this, the words of Jesus Christ, that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Confused? (laughs) John is to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Hey, John, are you Elijah? No. Hey, Jesus, what's the deal with this forerunner? And he's like, oh, yeah, uh, Elijah already came. And they're like, oh, he's talking about John. So is John really Elijah with an alias? Did God fulfill that requirement through John? It all comes down to the answer, and your answer, this is your lucky day. I, I have it right in front of you. It's Matthew eleven thirteen to 15. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, John the Baptist. Notice. And if ye will receive it by your free will choice, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. John came fully in position and place and power to fulfill everything that would have ever been needed of the coming of Elijah before the coming of the Lord. But it required that the people receive it because they chose not to receive it, and they killed John, and they killed the Messiah, it did not completely fulfill the picture. So it's postponed in the valley of the church age and will again be fulfilled when yet again Elijah will come, as we'll see when we get to Malachi 4, for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The free will of man through the rejection of Jesus Christ caused John to fall short of fulfilling Elijah's prophesied ministry. Therefore, Elijah's return as the forerunner is yet future at the second coming. That means that Israel's choices changed history. So can yours. So can yours. At a very simplistic level, when you choose to share the gospel with somebody, when they choose to receive it, their eternity is changed. And all the people that they will influence for the rest of their lives is changed. You can change the course of history. Let's look at our third point concerning God's judgment. And, and, and we will kind of cover all the rest of the verses in this category because it really is about the judgment when he comes. And it says at the beginning of verse number five, for example, and I will come near to you to judgment. Well, that fact is well known. I mean, God will return to earth for the purpose of judging the wicked. I mean, everybody believes, I don't care what religion, everybody believes that there is one big coming judgment day. Anybody who believes in a deity believes in some big coming judgment day. And the judgment of the wicked, of course. And, and you know, if you're pursuing righteousness and walking with the Lord, then that may be a comfort for you. You probably look forward to the day when sin is cleansed and and all of that but the fact remains that God made a declarative sovereign statement I will return and when I return I will judge and yes he will and there's nothing you can do about it it's going to happen no matter what in fact in verse number six 
He says, for I am the Lord. I change not. In other words, if he said it, he's going to do it. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to change his heart. He's not going to change his purpose. And ultimately, he's not going to change his plan, although the details of the plan may shift slightly over time, depending on what we do. The ultimate plan will take place. Your mind may go to Romans 11 and verse 29 where it says the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He's not an Indian giver. He doesn't decide to give and then take away. He gave gifts and calling in the context of Romans 11 is the nation of Israel. He called them to be his people. And he did not decide to say, oh, well, you blew it too bad for you. I'm not going to fulfill that. No, Israel is coming back. That is the story in Romans 11. He's not going to go back on that. He doesn't change. Back to Malachi 3 and verse 6, it says, Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. You remember when Moses in Exodus chapter 3 first got the word from God? What was he doing? He was taking care of sheep. He was on the side of a mountain, right? And he sees this bush. And the bush is burning, but it was not, say it with me, consumed. Because that burning bush is a picture of the, the nation of Israel. That bush is going to be burned and burned and burned, but it's never going to be consumed because God's going to sustain it. God's going to make sure that that takes place. Back in Malachi 3 and verse 2, it says, but who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appeareth? I mean, that's all about the judgment. The point is there's so much wickedness going on. So in verse 5, it gives a list and it says, and I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers. Now, if you don't know this, you should know this because the word sorcerer, now this is the Old Testament, so it's Hebrew, but the word sorcerer, when it's used in the New Testament, for example, in, in the Greek language word that is translated sorcerer is a word that I probably won't pronounce properly, but something like pharmakai, from which we would get our word like pharmacy or pharmaceuticals. The point would be sorcerers literally deals with drug addicts, people who are hyped up on drugs. I'll be a swift witness against that. And against the adulterers, all the promiscuous. Against the false swearers, all the liars. Against all those that oppress the hireling in his wages. Those are the cheats. I hired somebody to do something and I didn't treat them right. Those that oppress the widow and the fatherless. Those are bullies widows and fatherless, the weaker of the society, and you oppress them, God's going to be a swift witness against those people. And those that turn aside the stranger from his right. The stranger in the Bible is used as a foreigner, by the way. You ought to be careful about your foreign policy thoughts. And they that turn aside the stranger from his right are just arrogant. They're self-centered. And they don't fear me. But for you, I mean, do you fear the Lord? I mean, it will make a difference, right, if you choose to fear the Lord. It will make a difference how you pass through this sovereignly declared judgment. Man has a free will to choose. If he chooses to repent of his sin now and prepare himself for the judgment by asking Christ to pay the penalty for his sin, then for him things change. So I, I have it in your notes this way. When you repent of your sin, God repents of his judgment. That's clear throughout the Scriptures. Jeremiah 18, 
Verses 8 through 10, if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. You're free to choose, and God is free to choose to respond in kind. Jeremiah 26 and verse 3, If so be they will hearken and turn every man from his evil way, that I may repent me of the evil which I propose to do unto them because of the evil of their doings. And in verse 13, Therefore now amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will repent him of the evil that he hath pronounced against you. You repent first, and God repents of judging you. Ultimately, there will be a judgment because there will always be people who won't repent. But your choice makes a difference how you pass through that judgment. And I love Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. What a great missionary application. I mean, Jonah is really the only Old Testament character that really fulfills the picture and the type of what we understand to be a foreign cross-cultural missionary as God sends him to Nineveh to declare his truth to a pagan people. And Jonah 3 and verse 10, And God saw their works, and that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he said he would do unto them, and he did it not. That's, that's why we support missionaries. That's why we pray and beg God to send more people out to share his truth with people all around the world, because they need to repent of their evil so that God will repent of his judgment against them. And this judgment is declared and described as having something to do with fire. And so that's in your notes, concerning the fire. It starts in verse 2 and it says, For he's like a a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. We're not taking the time today to do it. The ultimate literal fulfillment of what he's talking about occurs in the millennium, yet there is a practical application, most certainly, for us today. In Revelation chapter 3, in the last part of that chapter, we have the letter that Jesus Christ writes to the church of the Laodiceans. In this church, if you've faithfully been coming, you're well aware of the fact that the day and time in which we live is most aptly characterized by the church of the Laodiceans. And so in that statement, of all the things that they did wrong, of all the problems that they had, and just rebukes and no praises, there is counsel. What, what should a Laodicean do? And Jesus tells them in verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, among other things that he addresses. But I want to talk about this thing of the gold tried in the fire And before we even describe what that is, and we will in a second, I just want you to see that Jesus' counsel to us in Laodicea with the problems that we have inherently in our society and in our faith society is that I want you to buy from me some things. You know what that means? The solution to the situations that we struggle with are going to cost you something. In other words, salvation is a free gift. Don't get me wrong. But to walk with the Lord and to not fall prey to the situations of a society that we live in, it's going to cost you something. Buy of me whatever this thing is, gold 
tried in the fire. What, what is that? How can we define that? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we compare Scripture with Scripture. In verse number 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So the appearing of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Lord, and he will try some things by fire. And what he's going to try by fire, again, 1 Peter, this is, a, this, is a, this is a Christian book. And he's going to try our faith. The trial of your faith. Your faith is going to be put to the test, and it's going to be a fiery trial. And if it passes, it's even more precious than gold, which will perish. So that's what's going to be tried, your faith. And when your faith is tried, and if your faith is going to make it, it's going to be manifest not just in words, but in deeds. And that's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, again with the context of the judgment seat of Christ. Verses 12 and 13. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, the foundation of a life in Christ, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work, there it is, shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work. Of what sort it is. Is he going to try my faith or is he going to try my works? Yes. Because what you believe is what you live and all the rest is just religious talk. And so if you really believe it, it's going to come out in your life. And if it's not coming out in your life, well, maybe there's a reason. So the practical application of what we're looking at in Malachi, this is not the direct teaching to Israel and looking towards the coming of the kingdom, but the way that we as Christians can make an application without error comparing with the New Testament epistles is that at the judgment seat of Christ, your fear of the Lord and salvation allows you to escape the fiery judgment of sin. Praise God for that. But you will face a fiery judgment of your service, your works for Him, after the point in time that you gave your life to Him. So, you might not be surprised that this verse, Malachi 3.3, puzzled some women in a Bible study and they wondered what the statement meant about the character and the nature of God. And One of the women offered to find out the process of refining silver and get back to the group at their next Bible study. That week, the woman called a silversmith and made an appointment to watch him at work and she didn't mention anything about the reason for her interest beyond her curiosity about the process of refining silver. As she watched the silversmith, he held a piece of silver over the fire and let it heat up. He explained that in refining silver, one needs to hold the silver in the middle of the fire where the flames were the hottest as to burn away all the impurities. She asked the silversmith if it was true that he had to sit there in front of the fire the whole time the silver was being refined. The man answered yes. He not only had to sit there holding the silver, but he had to keep his eyes on the silver the entire time it was in the fire. If the silver was left a moment too long in the flames, it would be destroyed. The woman was silent for a moment. Then she asked the silversmith, how do you know when the silver is fully refined? He smiled at her and said, oh, that's easy. When I can see my image in it. Friends, listen. That's how God uses the trials in our lives. He tries our faith. And while we're going through the fire, he is intently staring and, all, and his entire focus is on us. And he's not going to allow it to get too hot. 
He's not going to allow the fire to consume the silver or the gold. He just wants to bring out all of the impurities so that when the Lord looks at us, he sees himself. He sees himself. You have choices. You can allow the fire to refine and to purify you or it'll consume you. What we're looking at in this book of Malachi are seven key steps. And the step that this Bible study led us to today is that your personal choices really do matter. The last statement I put in your notes is that God will accomplish his will with or without you. Be sure of it. But you can choose to cooperate with him. Don't you want to do that? Don't you want to participate together with the Lord? Listen, you can punt, you can say no thanks, you cannot do things. And God is not hamstrung because you didn't do your part. Somebody else will step up. Somebody else will do it. But man, you'll miss out. Your choices really do matter. And if you make the right ones, that's where the joy is in your life. That's where the blessings come in your life. All right, let's pray together.